Mark's gospel, as we saw last week, the beginning, it is a new beginning. And I think when we come to look at Jesus Christ, it is always a new beginning. It's quite interesting. Um, I've been reading Barack Obama's two books. I've been reading all the stuff that comes about Obama. It's quite astonishing how our media, virtually all of our media, completely demonized George Bush, which maybe he deserved, but probably not that much. But they've got Barack Obama as a saint completely already. He really is the Messiah. And it's quite extraordinary just how this, this enormous trust that people are putting in. A new era begins. Now, I don't know Barack Obama. I'd be quite surprised if I said to you, yes, I do know him. I was having tea with him the other day. No, I don't know him. Um, and I have nothing against him. And I, um, I love his, his two books are absolutely brilliant. I, I really love both his books. But uh, if I was him, I'd be terrified at people placing that level of trust and this kind of desire for a Messiah. It's a new beginning. And after Tuesday, when he's inducted, everything, is that what you say, inducted? Or that's what you do with ministers, but whatever it is you do with presidents. I was going to say ordained, but that's probably a bit much as well. What is it? Inaugurated, that's the word. Sorry, Robert. In, uh, when he's inaugurated, that's right. After he's inaugurated, is, is the world suddenly going to become a better place? Well, it might. Who knows? We pray that it will. We're told to pray for kings and for those in authority. But I suspect that in a year's time, you'll find an awful lot of people feeling very, very disillusioned. I actually read someone who said, there will be no more sick. There will be, I went, oh dear, you have no idea. What, what, this poor man, it's all been put upon him. Well, here's, people have that sense of a new beginning. Well, here's a sense of a new beginning. And it's a beginning that, strangely enough, it's about Jesus, but it begins with John the Baptist. When a king is about to come, he's usually announced by a herald. Now, we know that Andrew and Peter, Andrew and his brother Peter, were disciples of John the Baptist. And as I said last week, Mark's gospel is written by Mark, but it's really Mark in Rome interviewing Peter, if you like, and and taking down everything that Peter says to write down this gospel, to write down this good news. And you can imagine Peter saying to Mark, okay, let's begin at the beginning. Let's begin with John the Baptist. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 37, uh, Peter was preaching to Cornelius, and he says this, you know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. In other words, Peter's saying, for me, this is when it began. I was a follower of John the Baptist. And so we come in here with John the Baptist and this teaching about... Uh, John the Baptist. And remember in Mark's gospel, it's just short, it's sharp, it, it's, it's just factual accounts of things that occurred. So he's saying, okay, let's begin with John the Baptist. And, and why is that significant and why is that important? And as we look at that, we'll see for ourselves what that means. First is simply this, and it's very important. Jesus' coming was planned. It was not an accident. And that's why the quotes there are from the Old Testament Scriptures. From Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi, chapter 3. Now, by the way, some of you instantly will pick up verse 2. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. Actually, no, it's not. That quote is partly from Isaiah and partly from Malachi. So if you want, you can start saying, oh, the Bible's got it wrong. No, these people knew their Bibles backwards. They knew exactly what they were saying. 
And what's going on here is just a way of using the Old Testament, the New Testament often does. Doesn't necessarily quote word for word, but sometimes it quotes interpretively. So what's happening is that Isaiah 40 is being cited together with Malachi 3 because it's only as Malachi 3, the voice calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. It's only when those two are put together that you get the full picture of what the Old Testament is saying. It's a, a kind of interpretative quote that both Matthew and Luke also use. Now, the interesting use about the Old Testament, when people say it's the gospel, it's a new beginning, so therefore we don't have anything to do with the Old Testament, that again is, is quite ridiculous. Isaiah and the Psalms in particular were the two most popular books in the New Testament church, and they were considered to be full of Jesus Christ. And it's a very, very simple thing to understand that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. You take the two things together. You, you need, when, when someone says, oh, I'm a New Testament Christian, well, that doesn't make any sense if, if you're saying, I don't accept the Old Testament. The Old and the New go together. And you'll find, of course, that the Old Testament is, is quoted on every page of the New Testament. Now, what's going on here is the Malachi, Malachi quote in particular was a threat. The people were impure and they were offering impure worship. And what Mark is telling us is that Jesus came, and what John was saying in his ministry is that Jesus came to purify, to make pure, and that's what Christianity does. Real Christianity challenges and changes things. There was a particularly significant Billy Graham mission in Greensboro, North Carolina, where a report went out afterwards that the entire social structure of the city was affected. And if we're thinking about our city and we're thinking about Dundee and we're thinking about what's involved here in this city, there's an awful lot of things that are wrong. There's an awful lot of corruption. There's an awful lot of, as there is in every human society, there's so much of the impact and effect of sin. And the gospel is not a means for us to escape from that. The gospel is a means for us to see that change. Again, forgive the Obama theme, but, you know, a time for change. Remember when Tony Blair came to power? It was, it's really quite extraordinary when you think about it, actually the parallels, because Blair, Tony Blair was articulate and good-looking and so on, and, and he came in and there was this kind of wave of euphoria in a sort of British way, not quite the American way. I mean, you never get a million people gathering to even welcome to him, but, I mean, there were, there were people p clapping politely and singing things can only get better and, and you know, everything's going to change. And, and there was almost that, that very British sense of euphoria. And, the, and you, but did it change? You know, did things really, really, really change? Maybe to some degree you could see certain changes, but there's no, there's no deep-rooted change in British culture and British society no deep-rooted improvement. But when the gospel comes, when Christ comes, then there is an, a, an enormous change 
that occurs in society. And if you want to change society, then you need to do what Tolstoy says. Tolstoy says, everyone thinks of changing society, no one thinks of changing himself. When I read, uh, I haven't read this, finished the second book yet, The Audacity of Hope, but when I read Dreams from My Father, I hope this doesn't sound awful arrogant, but I identified with so much. First of all, Barack Obama is basically my age. And although I'm not from Africa, I identified so much with his experiences and his desire to see things change. But the thing that struck me, that for me, that was missing, that was, that was different, was I kind of came to a point where I had to say, instead of, yes, I can, I had to say, no, I can't. I can't. Without Christ, there's just no possibility of things changing. And I think that's hugely, hugely important. I wouldn't want to argue that real revolutionaries and real agents of change, if you want to put it that way, are people who serve and follow Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It was not unforeseen. It was not an afterthought by God. It was carefully planned. It was a long time in coming, 400 years since the last prophet before John the Baptist came. Let me just say one other thing about the Old Testament and Christ. What Bishop J.C. Ryle says, we should always read the Old Testament with a desire to find something in it about Jesus Christ. John 5.39, you diligently study the Scriptures, says Jesus, because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. So, we, we note then that Jesus' coming was planned. It was not an afterthought. Secondly, we note that John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ. I just want to say certain things about this, a few things. First of all, notice that John's ministry was incredibly effective. People from both sides of the Jordan came. The whole, verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, again, it's how you read the Bible. You don't, if you... You don't read the Bible saying literally every single individual in Judea went to. No, I say all of Judea went to him. It's a common expression. Josephus records, now as many flocked to him, for they were greatly moved by hearing his words. Herod, fearing that the great influence John had over the people might lead to rebellion, thought it far best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause. See, there's a real hunger for hearing the word of God. And I reflect on that and I think, you know, after 400 years, the people were desperate to hear the Word of God. The equivalent here is like people coming from Inverness to Dundee or from Edinburgh to London to hear the Word of the Lord. How far would you travel to hear God's Word? You know, when you think about it in terms of priority, again, with church and things like that, hearing God's Word. I mean, I don't know what attitude you had this morning when you got up and thought, ah, will I, won't I? Um, if you had to travel, you know, 30 minutes to come, oh, no, I can't do that. Well, think about it. If, um, I don't know what your particular uh, desire or, or vice might be, but, you know, if I heard Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen or you 2 were playing, I think I'd be prepared to travel to London to hear them. Why not? I'd, be, I'd love to hear them. I think... Uh, there are certain things that we want to hear, or people that we want to hear, and we travel a good distance to go and hear them. Isn't it strange then how easily we are put off 
hearing the Word of God? Is it because we think it's always there? Or is it because we don't just have that value for the Word of God? I think that the, the, that hunger that was in the people there is something that we, we need to see now and we need to see more. If, if we really believe that this was the Word of God and what we're hearing is the Word of God, it would just be so thrilling, isn't it? You just say, hey, I'm, I'm going to hear God's Word. Now, of course, popularity, John was popular. Popularity is no measure of right, rightness or success. It's not enough to worship in a crowded church. I, I, I watched a little bit of Joel Osteen yesterday, and uh, um, how shall we say? I'm not a violent person, but it certainly pushed me in that direction. The question is not, are we worshiping in a crowded church? The question is, are we hearing the voice of Christ? John's ministry was a preaching ministry, a teaching ministry. That's why I was saying to the children that the, the word for voice is phone. The Greek word for voice is phone. And it's very interesting because it's a deliberate one that's used in, instead of stereo. And they understood that concept. Instead of stereo or quadraphone or whatever, it carries this idea of a single voice. There weren't many voices drowning out. It was a single voice. And that's the important thing. We're hearing the voice of of Jesus. What's the, the hymn? I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. We need to hear the voice of Christ. Who was John? John was very like the Old Testament prophets. He preached a message of forgiveness of sins by God. His clothing was like that of the prophets. Look at verse 6. He wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Zechariah 13 verse for he will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. Second Kings 1 verse 8, they replied, he was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt round his waist. Literally in the Hebrew, a prophet was an owner of hair. I can see you smiling straight away, saying, well, you're obviously not a prophet. <laughs> that's a bit unfair. But that's what it was. A prophet was someone who had this, this hairy coat, a loose cloak, with a leather belt to stop it blowing everywhere, a bit like the traditional Scottish plaid. His diet was also simple, locusts and wild honey, things that could be found in the wilderness. Honey probably came from the rocks, or it could actually have come from uh, the tree sap. The locusts actually were considered a delicacy. They were either salted or uh, roasted by the Bedouin tribes. You know, salted peanuts, you had salted uh, locusts wasn't necessarily his whole diet, but what's being said here is that it was simple. John the Baptist was a living protest against all selfishness and self-indulgence, and he was called from the womb to this task. He was, of course, the cousin of Jesus. His mother, Elizabeth, was Mary's sister. It's interesting, again, in terms of his um, lifestyle, how that was part of his message. The Brazilian footballer Kaká is apparently going to be bought for $100 million by the Sheikh's own Manchester City and be paid £75 million to come and live in Manchester. I mean, it's extraordinary. Now, the interesting thing about Kaká is he is a very committed Christian. And the big problem right now with the transfer and that it hasn't happened is apparently Kaka is not interested in money. All the people around him are. I mean, he doesn't really need to. He's on a massive, huge wage where he is anyway. 
but it, through his mind is he's apparently thinking at Milan or Manchester, where would you rather live? And he's also apparently asking God where he wants him to be and so on. But I mean, imagine living in a culture where you can talk about someone being paid that amount of money. It just, it, 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 is, it is wrong and it is obscene. And when you've got to preach the gospel in that culture, if you live in the same way as that culture, then it somehow negates the message. And so John the Baptist didn't do that. His, his very lifestyle was, was something that, that questioned some of the values that people had. He preached in the wilderness. This was a, not insignificant. It was the boundary between east and west. It was the Gaza Strip of, their, of that day. It was an area the Romans would keep a close eye on. In the Old Testament, it was sometimes called the devastation, the isolated, the wild, the remote. Lot chose the plain of Jordan. Jacob crossed the Jordan to meet Esau. Joshua led the people uh, across the Jordan into the promised land. Elijah and Elisha prophesied on the Jordan. And so, as Donald English puts it, where better to preach and baptize than in the place where current political tensions, past sacred memories, and cherished future hopes met? And there was, of course, also the idea that as the Jews were rescued in the wilderness, so also the Messiah would come out of the wilderness. And it was really a wilderness, the kind of rolling badlands of the, uh, between the hill country of Judea to the west and the Dead Sea and Lower Jordan to the east. Barren, brushland, snakes, rocks, and so on. But the important thing there is that John was preaching into the wilderness of people's hearts. And I think his message was so successful, obviously because it was the message of God, but because of the way that he communicated it and because his lifestyle did not, as you said already, negate that message. So what was the message? It was very simple. He came baptizing and preaching a baptism of repentance. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptism wasn't invented by the Christian church. That's quite important as well. And all the discussions, and Christians argue baptism all the time. Baptism wasn't invented by John the Baptist. It was something that went on. It was a ritual washing that was done um, Sometimes along the lines, Isaiah 1, 16, wash and make yourselves clean. Tertullian spoke of Jewish practice when he said, the Jew washes himself every day because every day he is defiled. <coughs> the difference with John was that he asked the Jews to repent and to be baptized as well. And it was that, that aspect of repentance that was considered so important. What is repentance? It's... Uh, you know, it's one of those words you think you know. I just sitting, uh, Emma James was doing her discover, and she said, Dad, what's repentance? I'm a minister. I should be able to go, ah, just like that. But I had to stop and I had to think. How do I explain what repentance is? It's a radical change of heart and mind leading to a complete turnabout of life. Second Corinthians 7 verse 10 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leaves salvation, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. You see, remorse is, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I'm sorry that I did that. But it's just remorse. It's just guilt. But repentance is a, is a, 
complete change. There's a real confession. First of all, if we are to repent, we confess to ourselves, then to those we have wronged, and then to God. Repentance does mean sorrow for sin, but it means so much more than that. It means to change one's mind or purpose. It means turning around, a turning away from something, turning away from evil, and a turning to something, a turning to God. And you'll notice that John came preaching this, not just looking for an individual repentance, but for a national repentance. And again, I would have to say that that is part of our message today, that we want the whole of Scotland, we want the whole of Britain, indeed we want the whole world to say, we have sinned, we have turned against the living God. We thought we could live on our own. We thought that we could be live as gods, but we can't. And you know, that's really what real repentance is. Now, I know that some of you will say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I don't need to repent. I've already become a Christian. Jesus has forgiven me and so on. But there's a sense in which repentance is ongoing. And real repentance, as, as, as we turn away from things that are sinful and wrong, and as we turn to Jesus Christ, in, in a way, the, the more we go on in the Christian life, the more real repentance helps us. It was a message also of forgiveness, the idea of being a, a, a forgiven of your sins, baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the idea of being released and of being set free. As far as the east is distant from the west, in Psalm 103 verse 12, it says, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Our God is a gracious and forgiving God, but he doesn't just forgive, he has to send His Son to deal with our sin. And that, of course, is John's whole message about Jesus. And that, of course, is why his message was effective, because it was a message which spoke to the conscience. It came with real authority. It was humble, and it pointed to Jesus Christ. And that's really the, the key to the whole thing. That's what he did. John pointed to Jesus, the greater and I want to say just a couple of things about why Christ is greater than John. First of all, in terms of who He is, He is more powerful, verse 7, than I. He is one more powerful than me. People would say to John, are you the Christ? And he said no. And he gave them an illustration to demonstrate how wrong they were. In that culture, I'd, I'm, I was trying to work out what the equivalent is in this culture, but most of you don't have servants. But if you did, in that culture, if you returned home from a weary journey, your servant would come, you'd sit down, and your servant would come and untie your sandals. Now, according to an ancient Jewish tradition, the difference between a disciple and a servant was this. A disciple would do everything that a servant would do except untie the sandals. That really was the end. In fact, you think about it. How many of you men will go home at lunchtime and, and your wife come and, or let's say you go home from work. Now, I'm being sexist here, okay, but let's just, we can do it this way just now, and I'll do it the other way in a minute. Um, you go home from work, you know, and you sit down, and your wife comes up to you, and she says, oh, sweetheart, you had a tough day. Here, let me take your shoes off and massage your feet. Now, I would say, hands up when your wife last did that to you, or uh, Mark's putting his, oh, wonderful. <laughs> Joanne, you need to teach a class or two, I think. I mean, you could do it the other way as well. I mean, you could say, you know, how many of us 
you know, how many men, if you're, you're married to someone, your wife comes home, whatever, and you say, look, sweetheart, let me just take your shoes and let me just massage your feet and so on. I mean, who's going to do that? Well, maybe some will. Ah, Mr. Miller. Now, that I believe. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's, it's... Imagine if you were employed in someone's service. You, are, you were actually a servant. Now, we do have servants, actually, because you can't flex your plumbing, so you get a plumber and you're paying for a service, okay? So we, we, we have a different kinds of servant. But imagine if you were employed as an au pair or something, and you were expected to take their shoes off and clean their manky feet and so on. It just, uh, you wouldn't do that. That's the whole thing, by the way, about foot washing and everything else that comes in here. Now, this is what John the Baptist is saying. He is saying that Jesus is so far above me that I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not, I, I, I don't even come near being a servant. John 3, verse 30, John says this, he must become greater I must become less. By the way, that is a very, very good indication in terms of Christian teaching. If you find a Christian teacher who constantly is extolling himself, and it's a big temptation that all of us have, if you feel that you've learned more about the teacher or the preacher than you have about Jesus Christ, all kinds of alarm bells should be ringing in your head. The real messenger of Jesus Christ is somebody who points away from themselves and points to Jesus Christ. John was a great person. John was a charismatic personality. John was a fantastic preacher. John had a tremendous message. John was superbly gifted. A man one, born a woman, there's none greater than John. I mean, just, John was just, and yet his whole message was, there is somebody so much greater. There is somebody so much better. Because of who Jesus Christ is. Now, if you've been coming along in the evenings, we've been looking at who God is and what that involves. And again, we're going to look at that this evening. And it's, it's then you begin to grasp. And to, when you see that, to realize what this is about. Jesus is also greater in this. He's greater in what he does. John baptizes with water. I baptize you with water, verse 8. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, again, huge amount of arguments about baptism with the Holy Spirit. Why? It's not that difficult. Romans 8 verse 9 says this, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Remember, the baby John the Baptist in the womb, leapt in the womb when he met Jesus. Luke 1 verse 41. The baptism in the Spirit was something that was supremely fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, but it continues today. And it's a, it's a fundamental part of becoming a Christian. In fact, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's just have a, a quick look at that. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel 36 and verse 24. Find it on page 868. This is God's promise to His people. For I will take you out of the nations... I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, what John was saying is simply this. 
He says, I can baptize you in water. But that doesn't change you. But Jesus is coming, and He can baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Some Christians understand that in the sense, well, first of all, you become a Christian, and then you receive the secondary blessing and anointing and so on. Now, as a Christian, you can receive many anointings and fillings of the Spirit and so on. But that's not the baptism of the Spirit, because baptism is something that's an initiation. It's an entrance into. And here is an uncomfortable truth for many people. You cannot be a Christian without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Spirit of Christ comes into you. Unless you are born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God, says Jesus. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. And what the Spirit does is this. The Spirit illuminates our mind. The Spirit motivates our wills. The Spirit floods our hearts with affection. It's a fundamental part of becoming a Christian. And so what John is saying is Jesus is coming and what Jesus will do is he will give his spirit which will fulfill these Old Testament promises of the new heart and the new spirit within. It's no wonder that he he pointed forward to Jesus rather than just at himself. And again, people say, "Well, well, how do you know this? How when this has occurred? Look, when you're hearing God's word, and things begin to change, it's because God's Spirit is at work within you. It's God who is at work. It's God who does these things. See, God was doing a new thing. These are times, these were times, perhaps these are times today of great change in history. At a very low point in Israel's history, revival comes. Faith is renewed. Again, Donald English says this, In these moments, it is for the people of God to be ready to respond and play their part. Sadly, too often the years of survival have witnessed the hardening of customs, attitudes, and expectations until faith itself depends on them. When God does a new thing in the world and most needs His people to testify to it and interpret it, too often He finds them resisting, resenting, and even opposing it for not being precisely what they'd hoped for or still worse, being too disturbing of their long-established ways. I think that uh, we long, I hope we long, for God to do a new thing. And it's our responsibility, if we're Christian people, to testify that and to, to rejoice in that and to point people to Jesus Christ. But sadly, as in John's day, as in Mark's day, many are not prepared to accept Jesus Christ. I think also in in kind of finishing this up, let me say this, that John recognized his place. He was not in control. I live in a culture which keeps wanting to tell me, you are in control, you are in control, you are in control. You can do this. You can think yourself thin. You can do whatever you want. You have the power. And John realized that he didn't. He didn't. Everything did not center around him, but rather around Jesus. We are most fulfilled, says one man, not when we seek fulfillment, but when we seek to find our proper place in His never-ending purposes for this world. Please understand that. If you're here today and you're frustrated because you're seeking fulfillment, the more you seek fulfillment, the less you will be fulfilled. But the more you seek your place in, in, in God's world, 
the more you live your life according to Christ, then what a difference that makes. Because then you're part of a, of a, of a collective where we work together with one another and with Christ to bring him to this world. William Barclay, who I don't often cite, but he quotes this song which I really like. It says this, In youth, because I could not be a singer, I did not even try to write a song. I set no little trees along the roadside because I knew their growth would take so long. But now from wisdom that the years have brought me, I know that it may be a blessed thing to plant a tree for someone else to water or make a song for someone else to sing. Why bother? You know, you, you see that whole attitude of why bother? Let me give you just two very, very small examples. You're driving along the road. You may never, ever go there again. You're eating something in your car. Ugh. Throw it out the window. Why bother? Someone else's will clear up your mess, and you certainly won't be back. Well, you bother because it's not just about you. It's about the whole world. It's about, above all, it's about Jesus Christ. So there are so many different things that you can think, well, why bother? Why should I bother doing this? Why should I bother helping with that? Why should I care about this? Well, if you're just looking at yourself and if you're just looking at your own life, and if you're just having yourself as the center of the universe, sure, why bother? But what a sad, what a miserable, miserable world you live in. But a world in which Christ is at the center and which his people are free is a, is a vastly, vastly different thing. John, and with this I will finish, John is the connector. He connects people to Jesus Christ. He's a bridge to Jesus Christ. And I think that that's the position that I want to be in, certainly, to connect you to Jesus Christ. Because when you're connected, the operator fades into the background. And I think those of us who are believers, that's what we must want, to connect people to Jesus and then to fade into the background. John was the signpost to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, not pointing to himself. And that's what we are to be as Christians. Now, there's a, there is a difficulty because I want to be appreciated. You want to be appreciated. And we all want to be appreciated because we want to be loved. But you know, once you realize that you are loved, once you realize that you're loved because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is, then that whole appreciation thing, it, 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 it fades as a motive. You know, you're not doing things because you want um, to earn the appreciation of Jesus or because you want to earn the appreciation of other people. You really can get to this point of view where you will say, I don't care. I just don't care. It, it just doesn't bother me. Now, that, in a way that, that can be really, really hard, but it's just, I'm looking at John and I'm just thinking, wow, I wish that we could have that attitude. And I wish that in this church that our whole aim could always be we want people to see Jesus and that we cry out in prayer, Lord, please let people see Jesus and don't let us get in the way. Don't let the preacher get in the way. Don't let uh, the congregation get in the way. Don't let my behavior get in the way. Just let it be something that rather that points people towards Jesus Christ. And then, you know, as you go out, you will say to people, like the woman at the well, come, see a man. 
who told me everything I ever did. Come and find out about Jesus Christ. And I, those of you who are Christians, please, I want you to think about that and take it on board. And if anyone here is not a Christian, I, I want to say this to you. Probably everything you think about the Christian church is right. And I could apologize, and I will apologize. But it's not about us. It's about Him. It's about Christ. And I ask you just simply to, to think on and to look about who Jesus Christ is and get to know Jesus Christ. I would not follow anyone else, and I would plead with you not to follow anyone else and not to put your faith and trust in anyone else. He is the only one who is worthy of uh, our worship and our faith and our trust. Let's pray.